the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour on 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word. This is your hour when Orlando Magic's Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. Welcome again, folks, to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We gather like this every weekend uh, right here on 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando. Uh, Alan Dempsey uh, engineers for us each weekend, gets us on the air. Uh, Andrew Herdliska is the producer. Candace Payne joins us from Dallas. Uh, her new book is out. It's called Simple Joys, Discovering Wonder in the Everyday. Candace, welcome. How are you? I'm wonderful. Thank you so much for having me this morning. Well, I'm so glad we can visit. Um, give me the background on this book. You know, I really had to address what I was getting private messages about after having a viral video a couple of years ago. I sat in my car with the Chewbacca mask and started to laugh, and it's, you know, a four-minute video with three minutes of laughter. And a lot of people started asking me, you know what? Candace, how do you have that joy? I can't remember the last time I laughed like that. I can't remember the last time I actually just sat and had a moment. And for once, I realized this world is in need of maybe some encouragement and some tools that they don't have to find and discover wonder in every single day that really leads to these simple joys that you can experience. You open your book with a chapter entitled, The Year I Spent with my head in the clouds. Uh, what's that about? Yes. What's that about? Well, you know, I have actually spent a year flying after the viral video and speaking and writing books. And and for somebody that has maybe a little fear of flying, for, for a very good reason, I wanted to dispel the thought that maybe you getting out of your comfort zone um, leads to anxiety. It could lead to depression. Well, I wanted to maybe turn the page and turn the script and see what if it actually led to, led to joy and led to adventure and, and risk and things that were wonderful waiting for you. And that transitions into your next topic, trash bag choir dresses <laughs> and the college crush. you got a lot of explaining to do there. Well, I don't know if you remember the 90s and 80s very well, but in choir, we had these taffeta dresses that just sounded like trash bags and looked like them a little bit, too. And if any choir kids out there, they understand what I'm talking about. I actually have one of my most embarrassing stories that I tell where I fall just completely backwards with my skirt over my head in the middle of a choir concert standing next to my college crush. And I, I don't just tell that story just to have, you know, a comical moment in the book, there was something that I really learned in that moment. And I learned that 
you have the ability in every situation to really own the moment and laugh it up or walk away with your tail between your legs. And as a matter of fact, I learned at that point something wonderful about Simple Joys, and it's simply this. Don't take yourself so seriously. I think a lot of people are finding themselves thinking about themselves more than anybody else does. You know, nobody's worried about you as much as you are. And I think we'd all find a little bit more joy in the undiscoverable places we think are hiding if we just stop taking ourselves so seriously. My guest is Candace Payne, author, speaker, world traveler, and uh, author of her new book, uh, Simple Joys. Zondervan is the publisher. Candace, we've moved to the third topic, the waterbed, where I said, amen. It's It's all yours. This was, I think, a long overdue question. Many people that had actually started following me wanted to know. They wanted to know, when did I encounter Jesus the first time? And when did I actually give my life to him? And what was my testimony, for lack of better words? You know, I've been very open about being a a person of faith. Um, And I wanted to be able to let people know that that faith is actually what has grounded me in joy. You know, I believe, honestly, when I was a young child and I, gave my heart to Jesus on a waterbed, nonetheless, um, I found that that started really the whole journey that I would discover to what real joy is. Um, And for me, I I know that the Bible tells us clearly that it's found in Galatians 6, it's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So I know that the real joy that I possess is because something is working inside of me to work its way out of me. And uh, I really wanted to uncover, if you don't have faith, um, if you don't even have a faith system, I don't really, you know, get to the point where I'm proselytizing people here in this chapter. I, I want to make that clear. But I am saying you it's good to believe in something because it can lead to joy. And I feel like if we have a lack of faith, sometimes we have a lack of, of hope, which definitely leaves us in deficit for our joy. So where was the waterbed and, and how old were you? I was six years old and it was in my mom and daddy's room. And, uh, yeah, I want people to read it, so I'm not going to share a little bit more about that. But, yeah, definitely it's a, it's a sweet story about the, the time that I had with my parents and, and them really just talking to me about what Jesus was and who he was and, and why he was worth it. Candace, the next topic, the house on the hill, the coffee that would spill, and the stories <laughs> shared around the table. It uh, looks like there's a lot to talk about here. Yeah. Well, I won't give away too much because there really is a very, very awesome, funny story about my dad in there, um, especially with that coffee that would spill. Uh, but I I discovered a lot of times joy is best when it's shared. You know, there are stories that we retell in my family year after year, every time we get around the holidays or every time that we get together for a reunion. And we find ourselves retelling and reliving these moments that actually just make us belly laugh. And I think that there's something to be said of cherishing moments. We don't do it often in this fast-paced life. We don't take time enough to sit and say, this was a good time, this was a good moment, and it's worth the retelling. And sometimes that fuels your joy in ways that you can't even understand. It's a very simple thing to do is just share that joy with somebody else in a memory or a moment or maybe capture it. But I, I really feel like that is something that could fuel joy in 
in an exponential way. Do you think people come into this world with a higher joy meter than, than others? <laughs> no, I don't. No, I don't. And I, you know, I get that asked a lot. Well, that lady that laughed in the car, she must just be joyful all the time. The reality is, is I don't think God's divvying out more or less when we, when he sends us here to earth. I think um, every piece of joy that I have, I've had to fight for. And every piece of joy that I own right now, I literally weaponize it on a daily basis so that it can fight back to whatever life throws at me. You know, I believe, honestly, nobody is immune to life. Nobody gets a free pass from heartache and sorrow and suffering. It doesn't matter what kind of life you live. Um, and I, I really believe that joy can be something that can be a weapon for, that we need in the darkest of times to actually keep our hopes up and to keep a positive attitude and outlook on life ahead of us. I want you to talk about the fifth topic, the day inadequacy tried to squash my joy. What's What happened here? Well, I just go to the root of everything here and talk about being a new mama. I don't know if it's really ever understood how inadequate you feel when you bring that baby home from the hospital. Like, I remember looking at my husband, and I said, they just let us leave with this thing. Nobody carded us. We didn't, we didn't have to sign anything. And we felt so inadequate when we first discovered that we were parents. I mean, you go through the whole pregnancy, and you, you wait and you hope. And then that first night home is just completely different. And I remember a specific story about how things were just a complete befunkle, uh, left and right with my son that was newborn. And I had never felt more inadequate in my life. And I knew that that could be something that if I stayed in that mindset and in that headspace of feeling as though I wasn't good enough, that I wasn't um, adequate enough to be able to be a mom, that it could have really destroyed my relationship with my son, with my husband, you know. And I discovered simply in that if you're going to have margin and space for joy, you have to realize that you are maybe inadequate in some ways, but for some reason, God may see it fit to qualify you. Candace Payne is our guest. She's in Dallas. Uh, her book, Simple Joys, we got more with Candace right after these messages on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You're listening to 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando. And remember, faith comes by hearing. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word. Now, once again, here's Pat. Candace Payne, uh, the author of Simple Joys, is with us. And Candace, we've arrived at the topic called Run for Cover. Fill, it, fill us in. Well, I believe that uh, this this part of the book is actually just a lot of fun when you would think about uh, when storms of life hit your way. Uh, we actually talk about in the book at that moment a, an actual storm that came my way and, and how we escaped and how we filled the night with a room full of joy and a room full of laughter and some misadventures along the way. And I wanted to use it as an incredible analogy for people to understand that you can find joy in the midst of 
the moments you're running for cover, the moments that you feel most tumultuous in life. How about selfies with the last white rhinos in Zambia? I, I mean, I, I, want, I want to hear this one, uh, Candace. <laughs> well, this one actually is, is a great topic about tackling rejection, believe it or not. I'd been on a mission trip, and I was over there in a country where they had some folklore and fables about uh, bigger white women almost being like a boogeyman for their children. So here I am trying to work in an orphanage, and I'm scaring these children left and right. And instead, I found myself in the kitchen and in these lovely places with these women that were preparing meals because, you know, I had misadventure after misadventure over there. And and I found myself really looking at the joy on these faces that were in the probably some of the most hopeless circumstances I've ever seen, but yet filled with hope and filled with joy. And the end of our trip, we ended up finding a game reserve and came across the last two white rhinos. And I'm telling you, it was a moment frozen in time where God just revealed to me that that trip would forever solidify how I could find joy in the midst of rejection, how I could find joy in the midst of even the most secluded moments where I felt lost in this world, in all honesty, just lost. And um, I feel like a lot of people feel that way as well and need to find and discover that for themselves. How many animals did you see on your tour? Oh, we saw uh, the white rhinos, and we also saw several of what was the big five native to Zambia. So you would see giraffes, you would see um, the wildebeest. Um, we saw tons of howler monkeys. <laughs> they, they actually were uh, clawing at our roof at nighttime when we were trying to sleep. And what took you to Zambia? What, what was the mission here? We were working with an orphanage for children that had either lost parents altogether to AIDS um, or they were abandoned by their parents, um, completely left on the street. And there's a group called the Chande Project in Zambia that works with them and that was taking them in and giving them schooling and education and it was giving them uh, Christian counseling as well, and trauma counseling and medical relief. And so we came over to organize a special week to be with them and to help any way that we could. Do you still think about that time? Oh, yeah. I actually went back the second time, even after that first time of full of misadventures. It, it, it definitely seared a place in my heart for forever. Take the good, toss the bad, you tell us. What's up? I believe that our families and our environmental upbringing really has given us an opportunity to either take the good things that happen to us and hold on to those dearly if we're going to experience joy, and then it's also necessary that we toss the bad things that have happened. And I'm not being flippant here. I'm not being trite to the person that says, well, you don't know my life and you don't know what I've experienced. But I will say this, there are things in my family, even to this day, generationally, that I've found myself thinking, if if I have an inheritance check, I have the ability to take it to the bank, endorse it, and cash it, or to rip it up. And I think there's some things that maybe have happened to us in our lives that we have the ability to say, I'm either going to cash that in and enjoy every moment of what I've been given and what, what this life is has shown me that is wonderful or the things that haven't been so wonderful 
that have maybe shaped you in a way that, that you're still struggling with and maybe even going to counseling about or seeking the Lord in. I think there's some things it's okay to just rip that check up and say, I'm not going to not going to participate that. I'm not going to perpetuate that behavior in my family. Uh, and, and in order to preserve my joy, I need to do that. Candace Payne is in Dallas. She's written a book called Simple Joys, Discovering Wonder in the Daily Walk of Life. And, and, and Candace, your epilogue says, prospecting for a heart of gold. Uh, what are you telling us there at the end of your book? Well, from beginning to end in Simple Joys, I want people to be on a quest. I want them to be prospectors for joy. And I believe that joy is very much so like gold. It is something that once you find it, you know the value of it. You weigh it. You measure it. You, you hold it dear. You either put it in the bank or there's days that you need to cash it in. And I believe our joy is a lot like that. Sometimes you got to dig through the dirt to find it. <laughs> but when you do, its value is remarkable. And so the epilogue I challenge people, come on, it's a daily it's a daily encounter for you to search and prospect, find the joy amongst the dirt, pull it out, and hold it dear. And if you need to cash it in, cash it in. I'm um, curious about turning an epic failure into a simple joy. Uh, do you have some advice for us? Well, I, it depends on the failure. If, if, if you're the one that's made the failure, I'll just tell you this. And nobody gets anywhere positive in life without stepping back up on the on the path and getting right back up when you fall down. So I would say it's the old adage of if you get if you fall down, you get back up again. You know, you continue on, you continue trying. Um, and then I would say that hope, hope really sustains a lot of joy. Hope actually is, it frees and clears the mind for joy. And I really believe that honestly. I, I believe that somebody that is without hope can't experience a joyful life. Um, so you got to get your hopes up. You've got to. Even if you fail and even if you mess up, you got to get your hopes up. Joy, give us some advice about sharing joy with others. Mm. Joy is best when it is shared. I'm telling you. I can speak from experience from a lady that had a video go viral where about 200 million people have shared it and <laughs> watched it. It is a moment that I never foresaw being something where people would just want to relive it and, and retell it and let's talk about it and let's share it. And the beauty in that, it really shows us that joy is best when it is shared. You know, if you've got joy, Share it with the people around you because I'm telling you, you never know what battles people are fighting and what they need to hear. And a smile on your face could really be more than what you even know. So share joy. Share it over and over and over again. What do you think are the reasons or the the things that hold people back from being on joy journeys? Have you you studied that? Mm, Yeah, I actually... I've discovered it through my own life, the things that were my obstacles, but then I also see just certain patterns that have happened in conversation upon conversation. There are themes that rise to the top. I think a big one is comparison. I think the moment that we're unhappy with who we are and where we are in life, um, we, we find ourselves just saying, okay, I need to have this 
maybe if that, I had what she has or he has, I'd be a little bit happier. I'd have more, more joy in my life. I think comparison, that old adage, comparison is the thief of joy. Um, and then I think there's shame that mm. really, really steals the joy right out from under us. I think um, a lot of people can be more forgiving, not just to others, but to themselves. And they'll be able to find joy that they've been missing and lacking. Um, when you don't feel worthy of something, you don't have a lot of room for joy. But I'll tell you this, as a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ, I am most content when I'm most confident in who Christ says that I am. And that always leads to joy. Candace, I probably should have asked you this at the beginning, but that title, Simple Joys, um, mm-hmm. I want you to talk just about that word simple. What uh, What are you saying there? What does that mean? It is not extravagant. Let's just go the opposite of it. I mean, I think we feel very pulled in every direction to create happiness and to create joy. So much so that we have Pinterest pages with ideas of what the room needs to look like in the atmosphere for us to experience joy or I don't know about these young people today. Listen, they can't have a normal engagement. There's nobody just getting on one knee in the middle of Six Flags saying, marry me anymore. you got to have a dance with it and a flash mob and a photographer there and everybody's parents. I just feel like we over, overplay every moment that can be just found in the simplest of joys. And, and we try to make it way more complicated than it really is. And I just, I'm asking people to take a look up at, at the world around you, even in the tiny things that can bring you joy. Because I do believe that those surmounted together, the sum of them will lead to extravagant joy. And a while back, you wrote a book called Defiant Joy. Uh, what's the difference between simple joy and defiant joy? Defiant joy is a six-week Bible study where I lead video teaching sessions and I have a curriculum that goes with it, a study guide. And I actually walk through six different weeks of really allowing people to get tools and scripture and the ability to know how to fight back with joy on a daily basis and even uncover some of those topics that we talked about a second ago, shame and comparison and really knowing who God says that we are. Tell me about your first book, Laugh It Up. Uh, Laugh It Up is, is so dear to me. It just turned one year old a couple of weeks ago, and it's, it's just who I am and the life that I've had behind that mask. <laughs> and for me, I felt like it was so important to let people know that my life has not been something that's been just a silver spoon, and all my joy that I have has just been handed to me, and I just got an extra measure. I really wanted to let people know who Candace Payne is and the life that I've lived and the the joy that I have that I have fought for. And I I really wrestle with sharing that I did. I shared with my homelessness when I was a child. I share about an instance of sexual abuse, um, postpartum depression, and a, a suicide attempt. I mean, I really wanted people to know this lady, I'm telling you, she has joy because she, she fights for it. And I wanted to give people the opportunity to find that for themselves. Where did your nickname Chewbacca Mom come from? 
So, well, it's not because I played Chewbacca's mom in a, in a new Star Wars film. Uh, I had a viral video on Facebook Live where I basically just bought a Chewbacca toy mask and put it on my face, and when I opened its mouth, it made noises, and it just tickled me pink. I laughed and laughed for about four minutes out of a three-minute video, and it went viral overnight. I had nearly a million views uh, the night that I posted it. And when I woke up the next morning, it had 24 million views. And before the weekend was over, it landed me in the Guinness World Book of Records for having the most viral video view counts within 48 hours. And that, that therefore began to dub me Chewbacca Mom when I would do media outlets after the video went viral. Hmm. What's next for you, Candace? What's on your platter? Well, hopefully just a couple more travel, travel dates at the end of this year and, and celebrating the holidays with my family. Maybe a little bit of downtime. <laughs> I've written four books in two years. I have been traveling and speaking, and I just got off tour with Grammy Award winner Mandisa. I hosted the night, spoke there, and actually got to lead some worship with um, them while I was on tour, and it was wonderful. But I'm looking forward to uh, just collecting some simple joys of my own around the Christmas tree and some Christmas lights and some yummy food. <laughs> well, Candace Payne has written a good one, folks. It's simply called Simple Joys. Uh, Candace, wonderful to visit with you. And how do, you. how do people reach you? Do you like to hear from people? Oh, I love that. They can reach me at CandacePayne.me, M-E. And really, if you're wondering about the spelling, just it doesn't have a single I in it. It's all A, from the Candace to the pain. <laughs> We've got more after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's 94.9 FM and uh, AM 950, The Word, in Orlando. Stay with us. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on 94.9 FM and AM 950. The Word. .com. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on 94.9 FM and AM 950. The Word. Now, the Word. Now, once again, here's Pat. Candace Payne. Our guest in the first segment talking about her book, Simple Joys. Uh, we go from Dallas to Atlanta. Colin Holtz is with us. Uh, he is the co-author of a terrific new book called Moral Leadership for a Divided Age. And in this book, they examine the lives of great leaders of recent centuries to offer models of moral leadership, helping readers discover lessons for their own lives and times. Uh, Colin... Wonderful of you to join me. Congrats on your book, by the way. It's terrific. Thank you so much for the kind words, and thank you for having me. Well, I think the first question, obviously, is uh, why a book on moral leadership? Why do you think it was important? Well, my co-author, David Gushy, and I both come at this from uh, both similar and different directions. He's been teaching a course on moral leadership for about 20 years now and was concerned really on two areas. One, uh, the sort of evolution of our culture and the lack of leadership or the inability to agree on a common set of leaders. And so he became more and more interested in exploring this question of moral leadership. 
And secondly, just the practical concern that there wasn't really one book that encapsulated all the leaders he was teaching in his course, and so students were getting assigned, you know, six, seven different books. So he came to me, and I am currently pursuing a, a Master of Divinity, a career in ministry, and I'm really interested in this question because I'm trying to move into a portion of my life where I'm fostering faith communities that are about trying to transform themselves and transform their lives. And I'm intrigued by the way the stories of really inspirational people can help do that, can help people change or ask interesting questions. And so we realized that this would be a really neat project to work on together. You open your book and and you do um, studies on 14 different leaders. Uh, The first one is William Wilberforce, 1759 to 1833. Uh, Tell us about that chapter. William Wilberforce is an English parliamentarian best known for the abolition of the slave trade and then slavery. And he's this fascinating case of somebody who really could have just partied his life away and sat in a seat in the House of Parliament and never really done anything important with his life, but became gripped with the moral cause of abolishing slave trade uh, and abolishing slavery for people, you know, half a world away. So he was, as a young man, ha- exposed to an evangelical faith, later had his own uh, conversion experience, and that really gripped him and created in him this moral cause that never let him go. And so he's a fascinating example of somebody who works within a political system constantly toiling away tirelessly day after day, um, pushing the, the sort of minor political battles of the day in order to win a larger victory down the road, um, overcoming a lot of hardship, putting his own health at risk, and ultimately winning a victory really right at the end of his life. I think you know he retired um, right around the time that uh, the uh, British Parliament finally abolished slavery in all British territories. Now I want you to tell us about Abraham Lincoln, 1809 to 1865. I, I would hope most Americans have heard of this guy. Uh, you know, Abraham Lincoln is he's a popular topic for, for books on leadership, right? We, we have team of rivals. We have um, conversations about how he how he links people together, how he led his war cabinet, how he arrived at the uh, position of leadership that he was in. We're also focused in this book on his faith journey and the way he articulates a a common theological understanding that, as an American president, is quite rare. Um, He offers up this idea that, that the Civil War was really about slavery and that what we needed that this, the Civil War was the payment uh, that America sort of had to go through for the sin of keeping folks in bondage for so long. And he articulated this grand vision. He's a really wonderful example of somebody who didn't start out with getting the, getting the answer correct. Uh, he, it wasn't like he began his life and immediately knew that slavery was evil. Um, he, he contrasts with Wilberforce a little bit in this direction. At first, he just was trying to keep the Union together, and he really came around right at the end of his life to this uh, idea that, no, 
this battle to keep the union together is also a battle to eradicate slavery and produce freedom for huge swaths of, of the American people. And so it becomes a really interesting story about how it's never too late to change, how leadership doesn't mean just sticking to your guns, but can allow for the possibility of changing your mind. Uh, we've covered William Wilberforce, Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Colin, the next person I want you to talk about is Florence Nightingale, 1820 to 1910. So if everybody's heard of Abraham Lincoln, I think some folks have heard about Florence Nightingale, but we've probably not heard the full story. Florence Nightingale is commonly regaled as sort of the mother of modern nursing and the epitome of everything it means to be uh, a perfect, caring, doting, wonderful, kind nurse. That's only part of her story. The interesting thing about Florence Nightingale is she was also an early statistician, somebody who innovated in public policy. She sought out not just to reform how nursing worked, but also to reform how armies operated. And she did it all at a time when a woman in Victorian England didn't really tell presidents what to do, didn't really tell queens what to do, didn't tell members of parliament or army generals what to do. It wasn't considered her place. And yet that's exactly what she did. And she created innovations in both medical care and you know, ways of, of evaluating the success of public policy that live on today. She's also a really interesting theological voice, utterly unorthodox but intriguing, and somebody whose legacy really has been limited to only a small part of her story in a way that I think a lot of people will find very intriguing. Well, uh, you have uh, told us about Wilberforce, and Lincoln, Nightingale. Harriet Tubman is next. Um, 1822, we think, uh, to 1913. Yeah, and we don't really know when Harriet Tubman was born. Harriet Tubman was born into slavery um, on Maryland's eastern shore. So she, uh, the date of her, her birth is not act actually known. She was born into and grew up in incredibly degrading and horrifying conditions. And she decided, essentially through a call from God, to escape. And the first time she tried to do it, she was forced to turn back by her brothers. So she had the gumption to go forward, and her brothers actually got scared. Second time, she was successful. But what really makes her special is that by the time she got to Philadelphia and was free and could be the architect of her own life, she actually decided to go back. And she went back over and over and over again, rescuing at first members of her family and then friends of family and then complete strangers. She didn't found the Underground Railroad. That's a common myth. But she took advantage of the sort of informal network. And what she did was almost all the more impressive because it was so entrepreneurial and so based in her own ability to be ingenious and come up with these strategic plans. Later on, she had this amazing career as a, a military leader, working as a nurse, as a suffragette. But I think what really strikes me about her is, is this willingness to sacrifice her own freedom for the freedom of others 
that's a theme that runs throughout this book is leaders who are willing to to not only advocate on their own behalf but advocate on others behalf to have an expansive circle of moral concern now i want you to tell us about ida wells barnett 1862 to 1931 uh, fill us in on her yeah, Ida B. Wells, or Ida B. Wells Barnett, which was her name after she got married uh, in the 1890s, one of my favorite people in this book. Ida B. Ida B. Wells was a, a journalist. She was a Christian woman and a Christian reformer. She was an advocate. She started out as a teacher and sort of stumbled into a career in journalism where she was originally set up as a, as a type of lifestyle columnist. And it wasn't until a friend of hers was lynched that she began, then began to find sort of the cause of her life. And so what we know her for today is for her courageous writings against lynchings in the South. And this is a part of American history that we don't know a lot about, that we don't study as much. And that's really a shame because it's, the dark moment, but there's also hope in people like Ida B. Wells who are willing to, to expose some of the horrors that people can perpetrate on each other and really speak to them in powerful ways. She became famous because even at the time, there were folks in, in white communities and black communities that all had explanations for, for why the lynching of black men was so common. And she was the one who, who set out to really explore in depth using data, statistics, numbers, the accounts of journalistic press in this very impartial way. What are the real motivations for a lot of these? What are the facts of these incidents? And when she illustrated that and put it to light, she became world famous. She didn't end lynching, but she was one of the people who turned the tide of public opinion against it. And that deserves, that deserves attention still today. Now I want you uh, to explain, Colin Holtz is with us, co-author of Moral Leadership for a Divided Age. Uh, we've now arrived at Gandhi, 1869-1948. Uh, Tell us about him. Most people have never heard of Gandhi, I think. You know, here's this random stranger, right? Why is he in this book? <laughs> um, you know, Gandhi is is almost as important for how Gandhi inspires other leaders in this book as Gandhi's own journey. Uh, everybody from King to Bonhoeffer, um, these are all people who looked to Gandhi as an example and said, oh, wow, how can I learn from this? And so, you know, Gandhi's life story, we forget that, that he became a Mahatma, which, is, which means great soul, for his work in South Africa. And this was before he ever returned to, this, to India and led the independence movement there. What you had is a story of an of a essentially not very good lawyer who struggles to find a career and is thrown uh, off a train in South Africa after arriving there and just decides he's not going to have it anymore leads a resistance movement in South Africa rooted in nonviolence, rooted in this idea of satyagraha or soul force, which is this all-encompassing spiritual 
political transformative idea that requires both internal transformation and external action. And he achieves not just victories over his political opponents, but he actually converted his political opponents to the point where the, the man who led the opposition to Gandhi's movement was one of his greatest admirers later in life. And so then he emerges back in India as this revered national figure who, quite honestly, could have snapped his fingers and asked hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, to engage in a violent rebellion, and he didn't. The thing we often forget about Gandhi is that he died at the end of his life at the hands of a fellow Hindu, a Hindu extremist who was upset about Gandhi going around trying to connect uh, Hindus and Muslims and trying to prevent the violence and bloodshed and, and division that came about at the time of India's independence. You know, there's a lesson in that for all of us. Our guest... And he's a good one. Colin Holtz, co-author of Moral Leadership for a Divided Age. Uh, We've got more with Colin. And when we come back, uh, we're going to talk about Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Mother Teresa, Nelson Mandela, and more. Uh, This is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word, in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on 94.9 FM and AM 950. The Word. Hello, this is Earl Mallory, Director of Sales and Marketing for Alliance Community. Alliance Community is a Christ-centered continuing care retirement community located in the heart of beautiful downtown DeLand. Our mission is to provide an environment for our residents which allows them to live as independently as they like with guarantees to protect them of the uncertainties surrounding future health care and financial needs. Our community offers independent living, assisted living, rehab services, skilled nursing care, and Alzheimer's dementia care. For more information, visit us online at alliancecommunity.org. Have you racked up more than $10,000 in credit card debt? Are you barely getting by making minimum payments? You should know. The credit card companies are tricking you into thinking there's no way out. Credit card companies would rather you didn't know that there are ways you can become debt-free and you don't have to pay the entire amount you owe. There are debt relief programs that help people like you escape overwhelming credit card debt. National Debt Relief has helped tens of thousands of people just like you reduce more than $500 million of debt. National Debt Relief has helped so many people, they're A-plus rated by the Better Business Bureau. You don't have to declare bankruptcy or take out a consolidation loan. You have the right to settle your debt for a mere fraction of what you owe. Reduce a portion of your debt now. Call National Debt Relief at 800-518-4020. 800-518-4020. That's 800-518-4020. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word. Now, once again, here's Pat. Author Colin Holtz is with us, uh, talking about moral leadership for a divided age. Colin, has advertised, uh, tell us about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, 1906-1945. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor. He was a theologian. He was an ethicist. He was a pacifist. He's a young German who initially started out 
uh, a, a strong supporter, uh, very patriotic German, um, even nationalist, prior to World War II, eventually became one of the leading critics of Nazi Germany, saw the evil at the heart of the Nazi regime, while others, including other Christians, were either endorsing Hitler's rise to power or at least compromising with it. And eventually he had the opportunity to leave Germany and escape to the U.S., but instead he decided to go back and resist from within Germany play a role as sort of a chaplain to uh, a group of people who were trying to resist, even to the point of assassinating Hitler. He eventually was martyred for the cause and uh, remains one of the most revered modern saints among the Christian tradition. Now, tell us about Mother Teresa, 1910-1997. Yeah, and if you don't mind, I, I I'll throw in Oscar Romero here, too, because I think you see in Mother Teresa and Oscar Romero two of the ways in which uh, Christians in the Catholic tradition have responded to the plight of poverty, especially in developing nations around the world. Mother Teresa's story is a story of selfless, um, self-sacrifice on behalf of the poor. She was called to be a nun at a very young age, had uh, later a call within a call to leave the, the cloistered environment and go out into the slums where she would literally pick up people who had been abandoned to die and, and take care of them, nurse them back to health, or, or even just uh, a graceful and dignified death, and really emerged as a hero to many and very quickly a Catholic saint. Oscar Romero in El Salvador is one of the newest Catholic saints, uh, canonized just recently by Pope Francis. He's a story of somebody who was fairly resistant to political uh, change, to change within the Catholic Church for most of his life. It wasn't until a really good friend of his was killed uh, for advocating on behalf of the poor farm workers of El Salvador that he decided to pick up that banner he, he described it as going home again and experiencing these people who were literally killing themselves in the harvest or drinking polluted water. He began standing up to the government that, uh, that sort of attacked and demeaned and oppressed his people and was also martyred for the cause, much like Bonhoeffer, he was while conducting mass. So in these two people, you have very different ways of of creating change in the world, but you have a, a common moral purpose, which is to speak up on behalf of the disinherited. Now, I want you to explain to us Nelson Mandela, 1918 to 2013. Yeah, I think the early Nelson Mandela would probably not be in this book. He's very angry. He's an amazing freedom fighter, to be sure. He's willing to stand up for, for uh, his people as a black South African under the apartheid regime. But he eventually gets caught and sentenced to essentially a lifetime in jail. And jail, instead of making him more bitter, actually produces this amazing transformation. And his dignity and his respect and his compassion emerges, and he becomes this sort of revered father of a new South Africa. 
And when he gets out of prison, he's able to call the nation essentially to confession, not a not turning the tables back on on the white South Africans who had led the country into chaos, who had oppressed the majority black population in just the most barbarous ways, but instead saying, we're going to plot a new future together. And his dignity and his ability to bring people together really stands out and has inspired a lot of people for a long time. Uh, The next person, John Paul II, 1920-2005. Yeah, and folks at home are probably recognizing more and more of these names as we come closer to the president. John Paul II was a fantastic critic of the communist and totalitarian regimes that overtook Europe and really saw when others didn't the the, the oppression and evil at the heart of especially the, the, the Soviet Union. He was willing to resist it even to the point of endangering the Church, and managed to craft this ethic of life that included critiques of, of totalitarian Germany, totalitarian communism, but also some of the consumerist tendencies in Western culture that maybe turn people into things and take away from their sacred dignity. And so he becomes this very interesting figure who is perhaps misunderstood in today's environment because we've lost that context of that Cold War context that he came up in. And uh, then we've arrived at uh, Elie Wiesel, 1928-2016. Uh, fill us in, Colin. Some of the leaders in this book are religious leaders. Some of them are political leaders. Some are pastors, some are priests. Elie Wiesel was a writer. He was a novelist. He's a survivor of Auschwitz. He was actually, as a young boy, at uh, a concentration camp at the same time that Dietrich Bonhoeffer was being held there, right, right before Bonhoeffer was martyred. Elie Wiesel's cause was, was demanding that we not forget the Holocaust. And so this theme of remembering and remembering rightly runs through his life. And so he's a moral leader because he calls us to not forget the worst parts of human history. We all want to remember the things that go well, the achievements, the advances. It's the same with our own lives. We want to remember our victories, and we don't want to dwell on our mistakes. Elie Wiesel cautions us to dwell on the mistakes and the horrors because that's how we avoid them in the future. And he thought that if we could remember the Holocaust and remember all that led into it, we might prevent future Holocaust from happening. And then we've arrived at uh, Martin Luther King Jr., 1929 to 1968. King needs very little introduction for American audiences especially, but King might need a reintroduction. I'm sitting here in Atlanta, Georgia, just a few miles from where he grew up, Uh, a few miles from where he pastored Ebenezer Baptist Church. I'm close friends with some folks who are currently ministers at Ebenezer Baptist. There's this long history and tradition. I think what we forget about King is the later King, the King that connected the civil rights struggle to Vietnam, to an economic agenda. King is a lot more maybe radical, maybe dangerous, 
maybe bold, depending on your perspective, than we make him out to be. He's not just about fighting Jim Crow in the South, but had this expansive moral vision of a beloved community. And that's both challenging and provoking in his day and in ours, but it's something we should remember, especially because he never backed away from his commitment to nonviolence. I think that stands out in really bold and beautiful contrast to even some other people in this book who were more willing to contemplate the, the possibility of violence and self-defense. King's moral stand on nonviolence, even as he approached a sort of radical social vision, was really amazing. Well, I'm so glad that we could visit with you, Colin. We got a good rundown on all of these remarkable leaders. The book is called Moral Leadership for a Divided Age, and it's put together by David Gushi and Colin Holt, Holtz, who's been our guest uh, from Atlanta. Colin, all the very best to you. Uh, so good to visit. We'll be back for a wrap-up, folks, right after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Uh, this is 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word, in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word. Now, once again, here's Pat. Thanks so much for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Candace Payne was with us in that first segment talking about her book, Simple Joys. And then Colin Holtz uh, joined us, co-author of Moral Leadership for a Divided Age. Please visit my website. It's patwilliams.com, the Twitter page, Orlando Magic Pat, and uh, check out my most recent book. It's called Coach Wooden's Forgotten Teams. Uh, Go up on Amazon. You can learn all about the books up there. In the meantime, I want to wish you a wonderfully Merry Christmas, a Happy Christmas. Uh, Enjoy your family. Enjoy our great weather here in Orlando. And we'll be back next weekend for more on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando. And remember, faith comes by hearing. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at the same time where faith comes by hearing. 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.